Lord God, thank you that you are so good. Give us eyes to see that, Lord. Allow us to experience your goodness. Lead us in faith, and this morning, lead us in your word. Open us to what you would say and what you would speak and what you would do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Timbers. So glad you could join us this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to worship together. I'm excited to continue in our series. So we're on our fourth week of the series, Encountering Jesus. We started with the first disciples, and then we walked with Nicodemus, and then the woman at the well. And along the way, we've seen people who were pointed to Jesus. The first disciples, John says, look, there is the Lamb of God. And we saw people who were brought to Jesus. You know, Andrew goes to his brother Peter. He says, you have to meet this guy. Uh, We saw Nicodemus who seeks Jesus out. He's looking for him. He wants to talk to him. And we saw the woman at the well who um, just meets Jesus kind of on the way, in the middle of her day-to-day. There's no seeking. There's no pointing. There's no invitation. It's just a random encounter, but it turns out to change her life. Um, And there's people in this room who fit into all of those different kinds of encounters with Jesus. Some of us have had Jesus pointed out to us. Some of us have been brought to him, come and see. And some of us, it's just kind of a random encounter where it's like, oh, what is going on? And you don't even know until later what has happened. And some of us seek Jesus out. And all of us fit into the category of Philip, the man whom Jesus sought out, um, And that's just a good thing to be reminded of this morning, that Jesus is looking for each one of us, that each one of us is a sought-after child of God. But our story today in John chapter 6 causes us to reflect, and it will cause us to reflect, on a couple of different experiences of encountering Jesus. What happens when you're looking for an encounter with Jesus, but you don't find him? What happens when you seek and nothing happens? What do you do then? And what happens when you do encounter Jesus, but it's in a place you would never have expected and never asked for? It's not what you wanted, and it's not what you would have chosen. And our story gets us into those kinds of questions today. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 15 to 21. And um, two of the, just to give you a heads up of where we're headed, we're going to look at two key or core truths as they come up in both of those situations. And those two truths are on the one hand, we don't get to control God. He's not in our control. And on the other hand, he does not abandon or forsake us. He never stops loving us. He never stops looking out for our good. But what, is, what do those things mean in these kinds of circumstances? So we're going to read the verses, and then we're going to talk through those things. We're starting in verse 15 of John chapter 6. If you have a Bible or a phone and you like to read it in front of you, awesome. It will be on the screen behind me. And um, we're going to stop in 21, even though that says 24. And as is our way, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we do this to honor the reading of the Word of God. And so that we all remember, this is the best part. So starting in verse 15. Some context. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. There was nothing for anybody to eat. And he's fed the 5,000, and the people love it. 
They love it. They love this guy who can make bread and fish out of nothing. And they intend to make him king. And so this is where we pick up the story. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a strange start to a story. Jesus has been announcing the kingdom of God. He's been declaring that he's the expected Messiah, which means the anointed king who's come to restore the nation of Israel. And now the people are finally with him. They're finally ready to do what it seems like Jesus wanted them to do anyway, um, which is they're going to make him king by force. But it's that by force part that puts a stop to this. Because I think what's going on is they're about to have him lead a rebellion. They're ready to follow him to war. And this is not the way of Jesus' kingdom. This is not the kind of king he is, and it's not the way that he is going to set about showing them what the kingdom of God looks like. And so with a crowd more ready than ever to sing his praises and put him up on their shoulders and cheer the name of Jesus, he disappears. He, he walks off into the mountains to be by himself. And he leaves his disciples, who clearly would like to be with Jesus. Um, you can kind of hear it in the way that John tells the story. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, and they got into the boat to set across for Capernaum. And it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And the wind was picking up, and the waters are growing rough. They've waited for Jesus. They've waited for Jesus as long as they could other than maybe spending a night alone in the wilderness, which is not particularly a safe thing for them to be doing. And, um, and they, they've gotten to the point where they're kind of like, I don't know which disciple was the common sense disciple who, was, who said, we can't wait any longer. We've done our best, but he's not here. We have to go. Um, and they want him, but they don't have him. And there's this poignant line, which just sounds like a description but when you remember the themes that John has been playing with, he says, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. John has spent five chapters emphasizing to us that Jesus is the light of the world. So by now it's dark and the light of the world has not returned. It's not a situation that any of them want to be in. And I can imagine the disciples wondering, what is he up to? Like, is he gone? When's he coming back? How are we going to find him? What are we supposed to do? He didn't give us instructions. He didn't say, wait at the lake for three days and then I'll come back, or meet me in Jerusalem in a week, or anything else. He just left. He just disappeared. And now we're on our own. And this is an experience that I think many of us in this room have had, where we really want to hear from God. We really want to experience his presence and for him to give us guidance, and for him to show up in some way, and he doesn't. 
And Scripture is not shy about this experience. It doesn't hide this. It's a reality that the people of God have faced since there were a people of God. So you think about, um, well, let me give you an example. Psalm 44 is a great example of this. Psalm 44 is a psalm that starts out, and it sounds like it's going to be really, really encouraging because it starts out by encountering, and these are the prayers of God's people, not encountering, recounting, the amazing things God has done. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, how you drove out the nations and planted them as a people, how you crushed their enemies and made them flourish, how they won by your power and not by their own might. And it's recounting the journey of Exodus and the journey into the promised land and how God did all these awesome things and how amazing God is as a king. And then you get to verse 9. But now you no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before our enemies. You've given us up to be devoured like sheep. And it goes on verse after verse about how you used to do all this amazing stuff, God. Why aren't you doing it for us? And you get to verse 23 of Psalm 44, and there, the psalmist is saying things that you, you, it's almost blasphemous. It isn't. It's in the scriptures, and it's encouraging to me that it's here. Because the psalmist cries out, he says, Awake, O Lord. Why are you sleeping? As if God sleeps, right? Like you're talking to the God of all the universe who doesn't ever stop being present and all-powerful and all-knowing and all of these other things, and yet the psalmist is crying out of his experience of the absence of God, wake up. Don't reject us. Why are you hiding your face? Have you forgotten us? Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. And that's just one example of many in Scripture of the, the just facing head-on the fact that we all experience the silence or the absence of God at times. And we are freed by psalms like that to cry out in the midst of those things. We're also called to remember those two key truths. And they're both really obvious in the passage we've just read, but they're also really hard to hang on to in our own lives, which is, on the one hand, that we are not in control of God. The disciples don't get to set Jesus' agenda. You can read the Gospels over and over again. You'll never find them deciding where they go. Jesus decides where they go. Later on, I think it's in the Gospel of John, he decides he's got to go back into dangerous territory, and the disciples all say, no, if you, they're trying to kill you. Like, they're out for your blood. If you go there, we're in trouble. And Jesus says, I have to. And so then it, it's Philip who turns to the disciples and says, okay, let's go, we're all going to die but we're going to go with him anyway, right? They don't get to set his agenda. They don't get to tell him when to be back. They don't get to say, okay, Jesus, you can go be alone in the mountain, but only for one hour, and then you have to come home, right? Like, they don't get to. Um, at the same time, it's also really clear that Jesus hasn't abandoned them. He doesn't leave them on the seashore never to return. He's not gone because he's done with them. And these are truths that free us in the midst of our experiences of the absence or the silence of God. He's never actually gone, but we don't always feel him or hear from him in the ways that we want to. God not being in our control is a really good thing, because if he was, every time you didn't hear from or experience God, you'd have to think, okay, 
Somehow this is my fault, and I have to fix it. I have to find the formula that's going to make God show up again. I have to find the right series of actions, of rituals, of sacrifices, of whatever, right? And there's a lot of the ancient religions in the time of Jesus' day. This is exactly what they were like. You never quite knew what was going on, but you knew it was up to you to fix it. Um, That's not the case with the God of the universe. It's also really good to know He hasn't abandoned us, that what we're going through is still a part of God's good plan. Jesus needed to step away from this crowd that was going to make him king by force. The actual message of the gospel would not have come through if Jesus had overturned the Roman Empire by the power of the sword. There's no way that what you get is the message of grace and of forgiveness and of an open path to relationship with the God of the universe who wants to show you how much he loves you if he's just finished leading a rebellion like that. That doesn't work. The goodness of who God is needed to come through, and so he had to leave. And this is true for the bigger picture. It's also true for the disciples in this story. And what the disciples are free to do is to do what we are all called to do in the midst of our times when we don't hear from God in the way that we want to, which is to do our best with what God has given us. So the disciples know they need to wait for the Lord, and they wait perhaps longer than they should have. They also, a number of them being sailors and fishermen, know what they've got to deal with with this sea, with this lake, that if they wait too long, the storms that come up often in the evening may strand them. And so if they're not going to spend another night in the dangerous wilderness, there's kind of a deadline when they have to leave. There's a turnaround point. And they push it a little bit too long because they're trying to wait for God as much as they can. They're trying to wait for Jesus as long as they can. They also know Jesus well enough to know that when they leave the wilderness, they should probably head to Capernaum. For most of us, as we read this, it's like, okay, they were going across the lake for Capernaum, big deal. But one of the things that's clear in the early chapters of of each gospel is that Capernaum is kind of a center for the ministry of Jesus. He keeps coming back there. He keeps traveling in that region. So Jesus has gone into the wilderness. They don't know where he's gone. They don't know when he's going to come back. But it's a pretty safe bet that if we head to Capernaum, we're going to find him. They're acting on their knowledge of the ways and character and patterns of Jesus. We can do all of these same things. We can wait on the Lord. We can act in the best wisdom that we have, right? And, and God has given us these things. And we can also act according to the character of God that we know. And we can trust that as we do those things, not that we are guaranteed to avoid trouble, but that God will meet us in the midst of them. We don't know when, we don't get to pick that, but he will. And both of those things are important. The disciples, I'm convinced, were doing the best they could, and they don't avoid trouble. They end up caught in a pretty bad storm. So don't take that advice of waiting on the Lord, operating on the wisdom he's given you, and operating on the knowledge of his character as a surefire way to make life easy and smooth and trouble-free. It isn't. There's no such promise anywhere. There's nothing you can do to have a life like that. Life isn't like that. Um, not for Jesus, not for the disciples, not for us. It is still the good that we are called to, 
in those times. And the disciples act on that, and they get into trouble. John, this story is recorded in multiple Gospels, and John emphasizes certain aspects of it and leaves out certain others, as do all of the Gospel writers. They never tell everything you could tell because they had a limited amount of space to do it. And so John doesn't tell us what Mark tells us, which is that after they head out onto the lake early in the evening, they row against this storm until early in the morning. And in those hours like five, six, seven hours of rowing, they make three or four miles. So it's not a fun time. It's, it's not a little storm. It's not a brief spat, right? Like they are going hard for a long, long time. And I'm really glad there were fishermen among the disciples. I could not row for five or six or seven. I don't think I could row for one hour before my arms would fall off. Um, but somehow... Somehow they make it, they, they're going as hard as they can, and um, in the middle of that, a figure starts walking across the water, and they're afraid. And I get that. Maybe one of them's sarcastic and turns to the other ones like, oh good, the storm wasn't bad enough, we need ghosts too, right? Or we are so close to the underworld, here it comes. <laughs> they're coming to see us because we're going to join them soon. We're dead, guys. Right? They're terrified. They have no idea what this thing is walking across the water to them. It looks like a person, but people don't walk on water, so it has to be some kind of spirit, right? And, um, in the, and then Jesus speaks. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they bring him into the boat. Now, let's, so let's talk about meeting Jesus in the storm. Um, this is something I think none of us would choose. Not because we don't want God to meet us in the storms, but because we don't want to get in the storms for God to meet us there right? Like, I would rather just meet God in the easy times and not have storms for him to come and meet me in. Not only that, when I'm in the storm, what I want is for God to get me out, right? So I, it's like you're in the middle of a, of a, you know, a hurricane or a tornado, and, and the picture we have is, God, you're out there, pull me out. And here is God, and he's not out there, he's right in the middle of it. And there's so many things that swirl around in this kind of a story and in this kind of a, an encounter. One of the things that I'm always tempted to ask, that I always want to know in the midst of situations like this, is why? Why did they have to row for seven hours before Jesus walked out on the water? Like, wh why did he make them wait so long? Why did they have to bring him into the boat in the middle of the storm before it all ended? Um, if this storm is so bad that they're rowing for hours and hours and hardly getting anywhere, I can't imagine it was easy to pull him into the boat, right? Without life jackets and um, what are those rings called? Lifesavers and stuff like this. Like, why this way? And I don't know. And that's, there are a lot of stories in Scripture that run like this that we don't get a why. You go back to the Old Testament, you think about Joseph, who's given these amazing dreams of how his brothers and his parents are going to bow down to him. And then he walks a downward mobility journey where he's sold into slavery and then he's thrown into prison and then he's forgotten. And it's years before he sees that dream fulfilled. You think about King David. The prophet Samuel comes and anoints him and says, you will be king over Israel. It's decades before he actually takes up the throne. Why? Why so long? You read the story of Job and we get to know what's going on, but Job never does. There's no point in the story where God shows up and says, look, 
This was a test, and you passed. He doesn't explain. The prophet Jeremiah is told to prophesy to the people who will never listen to him, who will persecute him for his whole life. The only people who give him a good turn are the enemies who destroy his nation. He's told he has to do it. He's told he has to be faithful, but man, he had to have wondered why. Like, what's the point, God? If you already know they're not going to listen, can't I just relax? But he can't. He doesn't get to, and we don't get to know why most of the time. That's a hard reality, but it's the way it is. What we do get to know is we do get to know the good that comes from it. So the same two truths stand out here. They don't get to pick. They don't get to decide how long they are in the storm before God shows up, right? God isn't in their control. They don't get to decide how it is that he meets them in the storm. They didn't pick a scary Jesus ghost encounter, right? That's not what they asked for. Um, God is still not in their control. And again, that's good news because most of the time, what we would have God do is not as good as what he does. They get much more than they likely would have asked for. It's also very true that God has not abandoned them. Jesus does meet them in the storm. He does come alongside of them, and he does rescue them, even if it's not in the way that he would have planned, or they would have planned. I think if it was me in that boat, I would have asked God to, uh uh-oh, my notes are out of order. (laughs) There we go. I found what I'm looking for. I would have asked God to stop the storm. Lord, just end the waves. Just put them to a stop. Jesus does one better. After he speaks to them, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. We're told that they were then willing, or another translation is glad, happy, excited, to take him into the boat. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, come on, get in here. And immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were headed. They weren't even halfway yet. God doesn't just calm the storm. He gets them where they're going. And John emphasizes this because he has Psalm 107 in mind. What's going on in this encounter with Jesus, and what in my experience, goes on in most of our encounters with Jesus when we meet him in the storms of life, is that God wants to show us more of who he is and call us into a deeper faith and a deeper trust in him. I think we've all had relationships in our life where we go through something really hard and come out the other side and realize that now that friendship, the trust in that relationship, is something it was never before. It's much deeper, it's much stronger, it's much more powerful. You now know that this is a person you can rely on, that the next time you hit a storm, this is the guy, this is the woman that you want with you because you can lean on them and you can count on them. And that totally changes a relationship. It changes it in the easy times and in the hard times. And God wants us to know him like that. And so there's three things that happen in this story that draw our attention to who Jesus is. First are his words. When the disciples see him, Jesus cries out to them. And the first thing he says is, it is I. But the literal translation is, I am. Is the name of God. 
Yahweh. I am. Other than the moment when he speaks to the woman at the well and says, I'm the Messiah, this is, well, okay, so there's three. There's the Son of Man moments with the disciples and Nicodemus where he speaks about himself in the third person as the Son of Man, and he's starting to tell them, like, I am the King, and I'm the one who is to come. And he speaks of himself as the Messiah. I'm the anointed one who is going to save Israel. But here he is saying and revealing to the disciples that he is God himself. I am. Do not be afraid. And those words, too, are powerful words in Scripture. They're the first words an angel has to say every time he or she shows up. Every time the angels show up, the people are terrified, and the angel has to say, don't be afraid. And then follow it up with, I've been sent from God, I've come with good news, I'm the head of the angel armies, whatever it happens to be. And here Jesus takes those words upon himself, it is I do not be afraid. And then he immediately takes them to their destination. What's going on there? Psalm 107 is a powerful psalm about the rescuing acts of God. It starts out by telling us to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. And then it goes through a series of stories about people who got into trouble. So there's the people who wandered in a desert wasteland and almost died of thirst, but the Lord saved them. There's the people who were imprisoned, They were chained up in the deepest and darkest gloom, and they had no way out, but the Lord saved them. There were the rebels, the people who turned away in their sin and who almost died because of the mess that they'd made of their lives, but God saved them. And then you get to verse 23. It says, Others went out on the sea in ships, merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord and his wonderful deeds. For he spoke up and stirred a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths, and in their peril their courage melted. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that it grew calm, and he took them to their desired haven." This is exactly what Jesus does in this moment. He calms the storm and he gets them where they're going. And John wants us to think about that story, to say, look what Jesus is doing. He's doing what only God can do. Some of the other gospel writers record that after this instance, the disciples worshipped Jesus. They got the message. Jews don't worship anyone but Yahweh, and they worship Jesus. I think John also wants us to notice something else. In Psalm 107, we're told that these sailors get into this trouble, they're at their wits' end, their courage is melting, and then they cry out to the Lord. But that's not what happens in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, it's not the disciples crying out, it's Jesus. Jesus calls out to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Because whether or not we have ears to hear, God is seeking us. We don't always get him in the way we want. We don't always hear him answer the questions that we would like him to answer. We do walk through times where God feels distant, but even then, he is seeking us out. And if we are willing to look for him in the storm, he is seeking us out there too. And while that's not an encounter with Jesus many of us would pick, it's probably one of the best ones 
It's one of the most powerful ones. Because then Jesus becomes like that good friend that you know you can count on, that you know has got your back, and the relationship you have with him is deepened and changed by that experience. He will meet us. We don't get to pick the time. Sometimes it's at the 11th hour. I, I, yeah, I'll just go say it again. I wouldn't pick rowing against a storm for hours and hours and hours, and I don't imagine any of the disciples would have either. Um, but he will. And in the meantime, know that he has not abandoned you and know that he is not in your control. And so wait upon the Lord and act in the best wisdom you have, seeking to grow in that always and act ultimately according to his character and seeking to grow in that always as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are so good. I thank you that even when we don't experience you or hear from you how we want, we can trust that you are working for the greatest good, to bring your kingdom, to lift us up into your presence, to draw us deeper into relationship with you. I pray that you would strengthen us to trust those things and to fight for those things because sometimes it's so hard, Lord, to hang on to those truths. Lead us, Lord, and meet us wherever each of us, whatever season we're in, whatever we're going through. For those of us in this room who are in the storm, we do pray that you would walk upon the water and cry out to us. For those of us who aren't in the storm right now, um, the day will come, but I pray that we would encounter you in this season as well, whatever that looks like. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, in your power and in your authority. Amen.